So we have, I read for us all of, I had Doug read for us all of Philippians 3 because we're going to look at all of this in today's sermon. In the past, we've kind of looked at just a few verses, but this all holds together as one big dialogue. And so for that reason, we're not going to go super deep into one or two words, but we're going to see the overview because these are, this is a big argument. And as we're going to see, it starts and ends with joy. In the middle is the gospel, and there's four enemies to joy. You guys have a handout here where you guys can fill in the blanks. And there's a few pencils distributed around. If there's not one on your chair, uh, you can find one hopefully close to you. The passage starts off with, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. And over in chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And as I was reading the NIV application commentary, which is what I've been studying for this past, for this series, he mentioned that joy is like this thread that runs throughout the book of Philippians. And it's also a way that he's blocking off the content. He'll, he'll speak for a bit, and then he'll say joy. And he'll speak for a bit, and then he'll say joy. And everything is, it's like his, his bookends or his comma. He starts it off, look guys, I'm in prison, but the gospel is being preached. Therefore, I rejoice. Share the gospel, live the gospel. I rejoice, so you rejoice. There's three examples. Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus are examples for you. Therefore, you should rejoice. And in this passage, he'll talk about the gospels and four enemies of joy. And then he says, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. And then he'll say, thank you for the gift, and I rejoice. So five different times, he kind of pauses to say, I rejoice, or you rejoice, or share my joy. And so it's this neat kind of way of dividing the content, and it's interesting to see how he structures it. It's also really significant because the Christian religion, joy is central to the Christian religion. Sometimes we have this idea that all religions are the same. It's not true if you study any religion beyond a superficial level. Hinduism is about working off our karmic debt. In our past life, we did bad things. In this life, we have to suffer to pay that off. Buddhism is about removing desire, because if you don't desire, then you won't love. If you don't love, then you won't hurt. If you don't hurt, then, then life won't be suffering for you. So Buddhism is about cutting off attachment and desire. Islam means submission. So the religion is about submission to Allah. Judaism is about obedience. And Christianity, we just read it, we read it every Sunday. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The throbbing core of Christianity is love. And that leads towards joy. Isaiah 65, 18 says, I want to read that for you because it's such a powerful verse and it, it kind of turned the lights on for me when I read that the first time. Isaiah 65, 18 for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. Why did God create his special people? It wasn't so that they could cut off desire to the world that he's made. It wasn't so that they could work off a debt for a past they don't remember. It wasn't so that they could obey him in the severity of his judgments. It was so that they could rejoice. That's why God created us. 
was to enter into joy. And in Nehemiah 8.10 it says, The joy of the Lord is our strength. This is our starting point. This is where we come back to. This is our life. Is the joy of the Lord. And so this is where Paul keeps coming back to. And he keeps bringing the Philippians back. Is joy, 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 joy. This is what it's all about. This is the throbbing heart in the center of Christianity. And in the very next verse, he goes from joy, rejoice in the Lord. Write the same things again. It's no trouble to me and it's a safeguard to you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. And in English, that's kind of jarring, right? It's kind of, whoa, beware of the dogs. You think of like a, a beware of dog sign or attention au chien. Um, you know, like, wow, really? Like, what's going on here? And in Greek, it's even more severe and sharp because he's used the minimum number of words to release and, and use really graphic words like dog. In any language, dog, there's, a, you know, the, the generic word for dog. But if you stop to think about it, there's other words that mean dog that we, I wouldn't say in a sermon because they're very crass. And in French as well, there's, a cert, there's words or expressions that have dog, chien, in it that you wouldn't use in a sermon because it's very crass. It, a dog is an animal that we love and we love to hate. And Paul has taken this word dog in a derogatory way, and then he says the evil workers, the criminals, those bad people, those pirates, those robbers. And then he says the false circumcision is what it says in NIV, but what it means is those mutilators those masochistic people, those slashers, those evil, yucky people that destroy bodies. So, what's going on, Paul? Why are you so angry? Is this, isn't this kind of what turns people off to religion, is when people have such a harsh mentality and harsh words against other people. Why is Paul getting so animated about other teachers? I believe that Paul is motivated by the fundamental conviction that ideas matter. Ideas matter because we build our lives around ideas. And religious ideas matter because they are the deepest ideas we have. And they have the broadest ramifications. And people get really, really hurt by bad religious ideas. And Paul cares about that. And if we care about people and we understand ideas, we're going to care about right ideas and we're going to care about opposing wrong ideas. That doesn't mean that we physically get violent against people that we disagree with. That's certainly not what it means. What it means is that we point out and say, that's a bad idea. That's going to hurt people. I do not agree with that and I'm opposed to that. So Paul says three things about these teachers. They are dogs, they are evil workers, they are false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There's a lot here, but as I said, we're moving quickly. What I want to look to is they put confidence in the flesh. Versus, Paul says, I do not put confidence in the flesh. And then he quickly switches over to say, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I'm much more. And then he goes into kind of his resume. I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So why does Paul do this? Why does he 
start off by saying we shouldn't care what our qualifications are. We shouldn't care what, what, it, what we are in our flesh. And then right away he switches to telling all the things about his flesh, all of his qualifications. Could somebody give me a Kleenex? I just have, it's cold out and I have a bit of a runny nose. The, the first most obvious thing is that it's not very impressive to say, I'm not putting confidence in, unless you have something you can put confidence in. It's not very impressive to say, I, I resolved that situation without appealing to my strengths. If you're a very weak person, you didn't have strengths to begin with. Or I resolved that situation without using my money. If you're broke, you don't have money. Or I resolved that situation without using my political strength when you don't have any political strength. And so on the basic, the most basic level, it's significant for Paul to say, I could put my confidence in the flesh because if anybody else has, a quali has qualifications, has a resume, I do too. And so it's signif significant in that way. But I think more, more significantly, what Paul is saying is he knows that there's only a certain amount that he can critique other people. But you can critique yourself as much as you want. And he really wants to hammer home that this is a bad way to think. And so he flips this on himself and says, look, this is how I used to be. This is how I used to be. I used to put my confidence in the flesh. In my heritage, there were things done to me that I didn't have any control over. Who I was born to, how I was raised, religious ceremonies that were done to me before I knew what was going on, languages that I learned, things that I, were taught, I was taught from the cradle, the heritage that Paul has, and the accomplishment this, that Paul has said, look, I have a sterling education. And as far as the requirements of the law, I've done it all. And as far as zeal, I was pushed to the point of violence for my religion. I did everything. How could we apply this to us? What would this look like? I'm a third generation Christian, raised in the church, baptized as an infant or as a young child, you know, taught scriptures from the time that I, I knew how to think. And more than that, I've continued, and I've applied the faith. And during those turbulent teenage years, I didn't go run off and carousing. I was faithful, and I was devoted to God. I went to Bible school, and I started my family on the right track. All these good things, right? Wouldn't we say these are good things? These are good things. Which is why it's so surprising that Paul says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He said it three times. This is loss. These things, these good things, my heritage and my accomplishments are loss. And I count them rubbish so that I may gain Christ. All these good things he has, his heritage and his accomplishments, are garbage as far as he's concerned. So what does he mean by that? Certainly he doesn't mean that these things are inherently bad. Because elsewhere he will talk about, let's raise up our children um, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He'll talk about his heritage. He has a love and a pride for his Jewish brethren. But what he's talking about is in regards to his salvation. In regards to standing before a holy God and being able to say, accept me, please, forgive my sins. I want to have unity with you. In that sense, all his righteousness is useless. And when he says they are like, it's like rubbish, 
I think that he's tying back to Isaiah 64, 6. Isaiah 64, 6. Find it. Somebody else might find it first. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. This word, again, we're, we're, in, the, we're in the gutter as far as biblical language today. Because the word filthy garment literally, basically means toilet paper. They didn't, didn't come in a roll back then. The, the prophet Isaiah went to the dirtiest word he could find. To say our righteous deeds, us trying to impress a holy God, is like holding up dirty toilet paper to God and saying, here, be impressed with me, accept me. That is not where we should put our confidence. Our confidence is not to put it in the flesh, but to put it in our Lord Jesus Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of their surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I might gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. This is what we do. This is what we do. We try to say, I'm a good person. You can't judge me. I'm a good person. Look at what I've done. Look at my heritage. Look at my upbringing. Look at my accomplishments. I'm a good person. But Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. We can receive righteousness from God. This is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And whether or not we feel sometimes like we're a good person or a bad person, we all know we've sinned. And Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. We know that, that at some level that's what we deserve for our sins. But it continues, But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5, 6 says, At the right time, Christ died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. And in Romans 10, 9 to 10, it says, With a heart we believe, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth we confess, resulting in salvation. This is what Paul wants. Why? So that he can gain, so he can know Christ. So he can gain Christ. So he can be found in Christ. So he can receive the power of Christ's resurrection. So he can have the fellowship of Christ's suffering. Well, hold on a second. Why would we want that? Why would we want to have the fellowship of Christ's suffering? Why is this something that Paul is leaning into and wanting? Have you ever thought about some of who some of your best friends are? Have you ever thought about how suffering has brought you together? Christ has suffered for us, and when we suffer for him, we participate in his suffering. 
being conformed to his death, so that somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. What good news, what tremendous joy this is. So the first enemy of joy that Paul is talking about here is the danger of legalism, the danger of putting our confidence in the flesh. Paul calls this loss. This is not the direction where, where we're going to gain anything. This is like getting into a traffic accident. You, you rear end somebody, somebody in a really nice car, you know, a, an 87 Ford Mustang or something, and the guy gets out and he's really irate and he's quite a bit larger than you. You don't stand in front of him and start talking about your heritage. Well, look, I'm from a good family and I, I have lots of money and I'm, I'm, I've done good things with my life and I wasn't going all that fast. You say, somebody else has paid the price for me. Desjardins has said they will accept the legal and moral responsibility of my actions. And I have a paper to prove it. Okay? Talk with them. I know it's my fault, maybe. But talk with my insurance. Because I'm covered. This is being in a foreign country. And getting in trouble. You don't say, well... I'm a nice person, or I'm from a good family, or this is all the qualifications and things that I've done. You say, I'm a citizen of Canada. Here's my visa. There's my embassy. I want to go over there, and they're going to protect me. Because I belong to a different citizenship. I belong to a different country. That's what is offered us in Christ. And the enemy of all this is stepping out of all that, stepping out of that protection and saying, actually, I am a pretty good person. Actually, here's the reasons why I'm a good person. And Paul says, no, that's not the direction I'm going. That's not the direction to joy. That's not the direction to glorying in Christ Jesus. That's not the direction to worshiping in the Spirit, as he starts off by saying. So that being said, he has... Another enemy of joy that he wants to talk about. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. One enemy of joy that we can have is to say, well, I said the prayer. I did the thing. It's all done. Whew, glad that's over with. Now I can just sit and do nothing. Just live my life because that religious stuff is dealt with. And Paul says, no. I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I've been called to pursue God. And the imagery here is very explicitly a race. And if you've ever, maybe in school was the last time you really had a race, you know, but you're... You're neck and neck with somebody and you feel like if there's anything, if you look to the side or if you look down or if you trip, you're going to lose. And so you're just 100% focused on that finish line and, and getting your body and there's no other thoughts in your mind because you're just go, go, go. And that's how Paul is. He feels called and propelled forwards to what? Does he have a, a missionary call? Has he been told to leave here and go there? Some people have that call, apparently. Because I'm a missionary, people always ask me, did you, have, did you have a call? What was it like? I'll tell you honestly, as I've said many times, 
I never had a call. It wasn't one day where I woke up and there was a burning bush in front of my house and a voice from heaven saying, take off your shoes for the ground you're standing on is holy ground. We continue, it was a long, complicated process trying to figure out what to do, where to go, second guessing, wondering if that was the right thing. But one thing I know is that every morning, God is calling me. The Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, is calling me to be better, to forgive my enemies, to repent of sin, to go deeper in my walk with Him, to learn more, to share it with somebody else. That's the call that makes me go. And sometimes that's been the call that's made me move. But let's not any of us hide behind this notion that until I've been called, I don't have to get up off my seat. Paul says, I do not regard myself as laying hold of it yet. The Apostle Paul didn't arrive yet. He's still running. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, as many of us as are perfect, let us have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. However, let us keep living by that same standard but to which we have attained. So again, we're thinking about live worthy of the gospel. The same theme from, from chapter 1, verse 27 and 28 that keeps repeating. Live your life worthy of the gospel. You already have it. It's a free gift. But live worthy of the gift. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Here is getting into the third enemy of joy. You're not going to have joy if you go the path of legalism. You're not going to have joy if you go the path of just saying, well, it's all done, it's all over, I don't have to pursue Jesus. You're not going to have joy if you go this path. Many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, by the exertion of the power He has even to subject all things to Himself. This is fairly straightforward. This is just living an immoral life. This is just living for self. You have it in your notes. They set their minds on earthly things. Their God is their appetites, literally their belly. They worship their belly. So there was a Greek philosopher named Epicurus who came up with Epicureanism, which is often associated with the saying, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will die. Paul quotes this in 1 uh, Corinthians. What some people don't know is that Epicureanism isn't necessarily eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we will die, like let's party and be crazy today. It means let's live a happy life because after we die there's nothing. That's what Paul is talking about here. And it could mean let's live moment by moment as though there's no tomorrow. Or it could mean let's just live our life because there is no afterlife. Epicurus said something like, Death does not concern us because while we live, we are not thinking about it. And when we die, we will think nothing. There's nothing after death, so we're not worried about it. 
Their glory is in their shame. Jeremiah 6.15 talks about people that have forgotten how to blush. And Jude 13 talks about people that cast up their shame like waves on the ocean. And we certainly know that this is a tendency we can have to be proud of things that we should be ashamed of. And their end is destruction. But rather, Paul says, look, we are citizens of heaven. We wait for a savior from heaven who will transform our mortal bodies. Our bodies matter. What we do matters because they will be transformed. We're going to take our bodies to heaven with us. God will transform our mortal bodies and Jesus will bring all things into submission to himself. Don't go the path of immorality. There's no joy there. And finally, in chapter 4, I urge Eudia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. The last enemy to joy is division. Live in harmony with, in the Lord. Help others live in harmony. These are the four things that can steal our joy. Legalism. Perfectionism. Immorality. Divisions. So I'd urge you. Lean into joy. Live in the gospel. Don't put your confidence in the flesh. Put it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't think that you have arrived, but press on towards the prize. Don't set your desires on earth, but walk in light of eternity. And don't let division steal your joy, but live in harmony in the Lord. Lord Jesus, I want to pray now for, for us as we seek to pursue you. And if anybody doesn't know what it means to have you as their personal Lord and Savior, I would invite them to pray with me now. Jesus, I believe that you are God. I believe that you have died for my sins. Right now, I pray that you would forgive me for my sins and that you would make me clean. I commit to live for you as best as I can. Please fill me with the Holy Spirit so that I can do so. In Jesus' name, amen.